That, of course, is the absolutely inevitable musical opening for tonight's program. Three Chicago Bears who bared or bore down uh, a good deal are with us tonight. They are all, as it happens, more or less a matter of incident or accident, uh, broadcasters on WGN Radio. They are Tom Waddle, wide receiver, Glenn Kozlowski, wide receiver, Ted Albrecht, offensive tackle. And we're going to talk not about the season coming and about who's up, who's down, uh, what were the good trades, what were the bad trades, et cetera, et cetera. We might stumble into some of that. But really, the behind-the-scenes look at the football player's life. What did what, you think of the statistic that we talked about at the That's news? what I was about to ask you, because you stunned me as you walked in here and gave that statistic. Share it with the world. I was talking with a good friend of ours and a former teammate of, of Glenn and mine. Uh, and you're not showing any signs of having that problem at all. Go yeah, on. Exactly. Jim Morrissey. I was talking to him today, and we were just kind of just shooting the breeze about a number of things, and, and we were, he's in the insurance business, and he's, he brought to my knowledge, the, he said, well, you know what the average NFL life expectancy is now. I was like, I have no idea. He said, I want to see, he said he was at 58 or 59, that the average NFL player, now it's skewed probably fr fairly dramatically because of, you know, accidental deaths and tragedies and everything, young men dying early, but... The average, even now, the average NFL player does not live beyond 59 years. I got to try to stump you instantly, or at least put a, 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 a comparison question to you. What would you guess is the average age of symphony orchestra conductors at death? Well, seeing some of those guys, I'd guess like 180, but I <laughs> probably like 80, 75. Something like 85 or 87. Right. You guys chose the wrong profession. No question about it. But I, I was basically made to uh, play football. I'm not a very bright guy, but I can lift heavy things. And <laughs> Ted will tell you the same thing. And, well, Tom, Tommy, it's obvious. So, I mean, not, well, not you a can strong see, guy, but. As you can see, I mean, look at me now. I, I'm coughing. I, I've probably overdone every antibiotic ever known to man in my time Have you playing. ever not been sick since I mean, I've known you? But, but seriously, I mean, think of how, I'm not suggesting that the folks at the Chicago Bears did this to us, but. But think back, uh, you were at Cal, you were at BYU, wherever you went to high school. You started taking anti-inflammatories, you started taking pain medication, you started taking, you, you get sniffled, you get the antibiotic because they didn't want you to miss a game on Saturday or Sunday. Who's the third bear who's missing tonight? Dan Hampton. And one night, uh, I was coming in to do this program, and I was walking through the conference room, uh, uh, which you know leads from right. where our offices are, uh, down to the studios, and the conference room was not illuminated, but on the big conference table, I realized as I was walking through, was sort of a, a strange Hulk lying on the table. <laughs> I did a startle response, and I turned, and Hampton said, Hi, Milt. And I said, What are you doing there? He said, Well, I'm just resting. And I mentioned it to somebody else, maybe to uh, Kaplan or somebody. And he said, he hurts all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, I think and he's lying there trying to get his pain under control. Well, I think Danimo is a very good example of that one thing about this game has never changed and will never change, and that's violence. This is an extremely violent game. And when you play, I think, a contest like that, uh, gladiator of, the, of, the, of, the, of this uh, era, 
uh, you're going to have the pain that Hampton has or has. I mean, he's had 12 knee surgeries and 12 actual knee operations. Yeah, I think he's had what uh, eight on one or right. Yeah. Eight and four. And he, the guy could never go bowling because his fingers are all pointing in different directions. Well, he could, but he has to hand. have like two balls now, because yeah. he could put all his fingers. Is in he them. more beat up than the average veteran player? I think he player. is. A little bit. I, I would say so. I, I've had a total of 13 operations, because that includes my shoulders and Good my knees. Good Lord. But, really? um, but the reality of it is, is you know, I, I just, the other day I was into the doctor, and he said, you got a knee of an 80-year-old now. So... Yeah, it doesn't surprise me that 59 would be the age that you cash it in because your your body just speeds up. Ted, I, I know you've had back problems, and I, I'm sure that it's probably at about 90 years old. No, my back is uh, it's not what it used to be. There's no question. I do have a right hip that's about. Oh, is it a hip? I, I knew hip, you had something. About 60 that. years old. The, the back end of my career with two ruptured discs in the lower back, and but there is some discomfort there. I always have there. I have to be very careful. I have to watch what I eat and exercise and make sure can't run any now. Can't run anymore. It's all walking. Uh, well, Tommy I, and I could never run, so that yeah, wasn't yeah. that was never an issue. Well, Tommy was never. Tommy, have, have you had operations? I've only had. Let me see. I, I've had four that I can remember. Only four. Yeah. What yeah, were they? Well, I had pretty it, tough too. You know, I, as Kaz said, when I came into this league, you know, I came and said I'm gonna play as long as I can, as hard as I can, and I'm gonna cash it out. In '90, I want to say '90. 93, I had both my shoulders fixed. I had the end of my right collarbone cut off because I had fractured it in college, fractured it completely away. I had a distal fracture, I think is what they call it, when the end of it breaks off. I didn't know it. So I had a horrible separated shoulder that eventually caused me so many problems that in 93, they went and just cut the end of it off, about an inch of the end of my right collarbone off. And they went in and sanded my left one down because I couldn't get my arms up which is a prerequisite for getting your hands over your head to catch a ball because my, my ligaments kept getting pinched between my collarbone and all the other bones in your arms. So they went in there, and I was out for, for four and a half, five hours, had them both fixed at the same time. And, you know, the, 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 what's going on here is that this is what you do. This is if you want to play, you want to survive, you want to make money, and you want to fulfill your dream, these are the kind of things that you put up with. And without question, I know we, there's been a lot of talk in the city here and around the country in the last couple of weeks with, with Sheedy Wheeler and, of course, the big yeah. Minnesota Viking that went down. These are all things that we would do again. We would do, but look, we would do this again. is a sport, then, which is really more injurious, much more wear and tear on the body than any of the other major sports. Isn't that right? I would think Hockey's so. I think probably, hockey players yeah. are pretty close to us. Well, they lose, they lose teeth. Well, you know, I, I knew that was going to come up tonight. I remember coming back from with Troy Murray or somebody from uh, a golf tournament. We were in the car for a couple hours. And he said, I was one of the only Canadians that played high school hockey and football. And he said, I took a severe beating, twice as much playing football really? than I did uh -huh. hockey. He says, hockey, you can see him coming. You're still on yeah. skates. You know what I mean? Right, and so there's it, still that element of give when they hit That's them. right. And you can brush him, and it looks as a lot worse than it really is. But he said, I never, ever felt as painful as I did week after week of playing high school football. I suddenly appreciate in a new way the song of... Uh, the Georgia Tech team. I'm a rambling wreck from Georgia Tech. <laughs> That's right. You're all rambling wrecks. How right? did you know that, Milt? That's pretty good. Well, that is. Milt that knows is everything. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You'll learn this as you go along tonight. He <laughs> knows a, everything. We got a football team down at the University of Chicago, haven't you heard? Yeah. <laughs> yes, you do now. And that's I don't, I don't think any of you made it into NFL, though, in recent no, years. But I, I think it's back up again. Yeah. A kid from. Uh, my son's high school is there yeah. playing this year, so that's that's good news. Of course, and the original Monsters of the Midway, I might add. Under uh, Alonzo Stagg? Yes. That's what Monsters of the Midway referred to originally. Absolutely. University of Chicago. But that was about 1910 or that Right, right? of course. 
uh, some commercials are coming. You guys have heard about those, have you? Uh, I don't, I don't it's how we get paid, it. right? Know what I they think told so. Us? Okay. I think so. We'll pause for those, then directly back to Waddle, Kozlowski, and Albrecht, uh, and we'll reveal some of the secrets of the NFL life, apart from the injuries. For example, one secret that needs to be understood is, what do you do about all the groupies who follow you and want yeah. to have instant <laughs> intimacy with you? We Come return... on, Kaz, help us out, buddy. <laughs> I've never had that problem. We, we return after these words. Our guests were all significant members of the Chicago Bears. They remain significant uh, football broadcasters. Tom Waddle, of course, uh, of WGN's own Sports Central, uh, and of the Three Bears. Uh, Glenn Kozlowski is another member of the Three Bears who sometimes shows up on Sports Central as well. And Ted Albrecht uh, is the color commentator for WGN's Northwestern football broadcast. Uh, let's see. Uh, what are your years? Tom is the youngest. Yeah, I was here from 80, 89 to 94. I retired from the Bengals before the 95 season. I'm 34 years old. And then Glenn comes next. 86 right? through 93. Yeah. How old are you now? I'm not even sure. Uh, 38. <laughs> 38. That's, a, that's the first stumper. Ted's the old guy. Yeah, yes, I came in in 1977 and retired in the middle of camp of 1983. And I can say that I played against some of the great walls. That I played against the fearsome foursome, uh, the purple people eaters, the steel curtain, and a few others along the way. So I, I was a part of that old era. Is the purple too. people eaters Detroit? Do I remember correct? Minnesota, Minnesota Vikings. Minnesota Vikings. Yes. Got that wrong. Who were they by well, name? Okay. Uh, on the right edge, of course, we had Jim Marshall, who played the most career starts in the NFL. When he, when I uh, played him the first time, I think he was like an 18-year veteran. And that would be Judge. Yeah. You know, no, 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 no. That's Alan Carl Page. Was oh, that oh, Alan, no, Alan Page? Alan Page. Alan Page plays right, next right, to him. Right, right. I thought Page played longer. He didn't play longer. Uh, no. He, Page ended his career with the Bears. He, right. He that's why I thought he last it longer than uh, Mark. No. Alan, Alan Page uh, played just a few years under that. And then, and then Larson and Sutherland were tackles. And then the other defensive end was Carl Eller, of course. You're an offensive tackle. Yes, I was. You're on the line. The play's about to be called. You're facing your opponent. What's said across the line? Well, uh, do you guys try to uh, try to psych each other out? Do you insult each other? Do you talk like friends? What goes on in the in the conversation between members of opposite teams? Clean it up for the listeners too. Tim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's changed a lot in the last decade. I think it's gotten the, the the word trash has come into play a little bit more. Back then, I think there was a little bit more respect. But m m the story that I remember the most is in my rookie year, we were going down to play the the Dallas Cowboys, and uh, we were the wild card team going down there and trying to make the most of it. And uh, and Harvey Martin was an All Pro defensive right end. And every time he got a sack, they flashed up on the scoreboard at the end, Martinized, Martinized, Martinized. And he was leading the NFL with 25 sacks, and that was just in a 14-game schedule. So all week long, everybody reminded me that I was going to be Martinized. <laughs> all week long. And they had, you know, they had made up fake T-shirts and put them on my locker, and they put Did them on my chair. Did you face Martin on the line? Uh, yes. So What uh, would he say to you? So... Uh, what it ended up is, uh, I'll shorten it up, second to last game of the, uh, uh, second to last play of the game, I, I turned my ankle. And, uh, and I, he had not gotten a sack up to that point. And he said to me, he says, now I get my sack, boy. He says, you're going down. I'm getting number 26 right mm -hmm. now. And he did. <laughs> and he did. 
And I was trying to get Jeff Seavey onto you, you the were, field. You were, you were wounded at the time. I he was, could smell the blood. He could smell the blood. He could see Just it coming. Just a shark smelling the blood. And, and I was waving for Jeff Seavey, you know, my backup, who I played college football with. Hey, Jeff, come on in. And he was hiding behind the Gatorade barrels. He, did, he didn't want to come in for two plays. But nobody looks at you and says, you're a dead man. You're not going home tonight. Well, I, Stuff I, like that. I would say oh. when Tommy and I yeah. played, the guys started talking more trash. I think the ultimate trash talker was Deion Sanders. And... He was in Atlanta, and we were playing. And, and my job, basically, in the NFL, because I blew my knee out my senior year in college, was uh -huh. to um, play special teams. And that's how I made my living. And uh, Dion was the premier punt returner that season and for many seasons thereafter. And actually, Tommy's the only guy that actually scored a touchdown on Dion where he actually ran away from him. Of course, Dion fell down three times before Tommy got into the end zone. But he did do that. But um, I'll tell you this. We were playing him. In, Trash talker means dirty work. Oh, well, he just talked nonstop. I'll never forget. We, I had single coverage on the outside, and we punted the ball, and I took off. And it was a line drive, and Dion fumbled it. And he went to dive on it. So I'm figuring, all right, this is a young punk. I'm just going to spear him. So I just put my helmet right in his back. And, of course, mm -hmm. you'd be fined $50,000 today if you did it. But I speared him. And so he jumps up, and he starts screaming. You know, I think he's mad at me. And he's going, I'm going to take I was going to take it to your house, and I was going to sleep with your mom and your brothers and your sisters, and he's going on and on and on. You know what I got for you right now? How about a waddle touchdown? I'm okay. not sure whether this is the touchdown you're talking about, but it is one of those rare things, a waddle <laughs> touchdown. Yeah, they didn't have it often. The Falcon 41 out of the shotgun. Waddle deployed a motion to the right side. Harbaugh gets the snap. Oh, Being God. blitzed by Darian Conner. Nice. Throws the middle. Got Waddle. Yes. Breaking yes. three to the 30. Hit the ball all the way. To the 20. To the he 10. Out to the 5. The Touchdown. The outran Dion for four yards. Look, he had a 10-yard head start. Oh. White flash. <laughs> all right. 41 <laughs> yards. Yes. Thinking about that. Who's the big point team here, guys? Okay, so here's yards. the best story of all. Okay, that's night. What was it? 1992, and it causes the same game that you're talking about, where you right, spear right. Dion. Well, no, it was a different. It was different. It was a different goal. Okay. Well, we I came off the field, and it was we beat him that day, and that, that was significant enough. And I had I want to say five catches for about 75 yards and a touchdown, and that's a huge day for a Bears wide receiver at that time. And I'm thinking I'm you know everything's great. It's my second really year of playing. I'm feeling good about myself, and I walk off the field. And Deion Sanders comes up, and I played against Deion most of the day, matched up one-to-one -one with him. And, and he comes over, and he says, Waddle. And I go, and I looked, and, you know, I'm still this young, you know, young guy. And I'm, uh, I swear, I just go, yes, Mr. Sanders. <laughs> and he looks at me, and he goes, these his exact words he says to me, he goes, you're the best white wide receiver I've ever played against. So I'm thinking, you know, now I had five catches, 75 yards, a touchdown. We win the game. I go running into the locker room, and I'm sky high, feeling good about myself. And I come in, and my locker, my locker was real close to a guy named John Mangum. He was a similar player. He was a safety, but small, small white guy, not a great athlete, but very good. And I come in, and he goes, great game today. You know, we won the game. You had a good game. He goes, you're all excited. What's happening? And I said, John, you don't even know the best part. He goes, well, what happened? I said, when I was coming off the field, Deion Sanders looked at me and said, Waddle, you're the best white wide receiver I've ever played against. And John got this look on his face like, you're an idiot. And he looks at me and goes, yeah, that's great, but there's you, there's Eddie McCaffrey, there's Ricky Pearl. There's only three of you white wide receivers in the entire league, so take it for what it's worth. <laughs> so, I mean, he absolutely shot me down. This was my moment in the sun, and Deion Sanders tells me how good I am. And I have one of my best friends right there to actually pull me back in. And, and you got cut the next week, right? Pretty much. It, exactly. <laughs> and, and to finish this, too, he was just talking about, oh, yeah. um, you know, nonstop. And the whole day I'm, I'm hitting him and I'm spearing him. And 
So the the last time we're kicking off, and it was one of those games that we end up, because Atlanta was horrible, and he was on a horrible team. We're beating the snot out of him. We kick off to him. So I figured I'm going to bait Dion to the sideline and just cremate him. Well, he's too fast, and he gets by me. So when he steps out of bounds, I just go over there and club him on the sideline, and I get a 15-yard penalty. <laughs> so I knock him to the ground, and he's looking up at me, and I said, you know, Dion, you are a punk. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, but I'm a rich punk. And I went, yes, you are. You know, he was right. That, yes, he was. That line reminds me, who said the following? I would even try to imitate him and I'll do it very poorly. I'm closer to Muhammad Ali than any other white broadcaster. Howard, Howard Cosell. Cosell. Yeah. <laughs> One of his famous quotes. I tell you what, though, I mean, you would think it would not be because, I mean, you can you can attest to this as well. We were in the minority, being white wide receivers in that league for some time. And we would actually, and, and I've been very open about saying it, there were a lot of racially insensitive remarks directed at me about my, me being a white wide receiver. I'm not going to get off the line. You're not going to be able to do anything. You know, you shouldn't be out here. You know, that's right. Basketball is virtually a black sport these days. How black is NFL football? Well, I don't. I don't think it's. Uh, I think it's fifty-fifty. I don't think about fifty-fifty. Uh, I, I would. I would think so. I, I think. I, I think it's. A, they're in the majority. I think. Uh, well, I think it. I, I think it's skill positions, but at different positions also it it, it differs. At um, linemen, I, I think that is probably fifty-fifty. I think you go on D side, inside I, tackles. Yeah. It's probably. I think there are some yeah. things said insensitively on the field, whether it's a, a you know racially initiated by a white guy or racially initiated by a black man. There are some things said on a football field that are forgotten when the yes. game is over that would never pass on the street. Well, right, yeah. and, and it's because it's part of the game. The thing about football is, and here was the beauty of it, and this is what I loved about it. When I was seven years old, I got a, my first uniform. I'm out there, and I hit this kid on the sidelines, and, I mean, I cremated him, and his nose started bubbling and up. And you enjoyed that. And he was you? crying and everything else Constant. on the sidelines. Of course he loved that. <laughs> and I, and I, but here's the, the crazy part about it is I, I kind of cringed because I, my mother was Hawaiian and Samoan, and when we got out of line, boy, she smacked us around. And so I looked up into the stands because I think, I hit this kid too hard. My mom's going to come down here and give me a lick it right here on the field. When I looked up, she was cheering, and everybody else was cheering. And I thought, you've been a sick, psychotic like freak ever since sport. then. But I'm telling you, this was what I said, this is my sport. I uh, like this. It's the only sport where you can absolutely crush a guy and be cheered for it. And it was, you know, it, you guys both, when you played it, it was a game that I loved because it was one-on-one. -on -one. I, uh, I was on a national championship in 1984. I was the captain of that team. And our motto that year was, I am one and only one, but I can and will make a difference. And we basically, if you looked at us on paper, we were awful compared to everybody else. But we played one guy. We beat the guy across from us. And so it really is, even though it's a team sport, <clears throat> it's an individual sport as well. But it must differ from position to position. The guys really enjoy crushing and banging and that's uh, Ted's and department. Yeah. I should think that's more on the line. I should yeah. think ordinarily that receivers and quarterbacks uh, are on differently, the well, are we differently on, constructed. We were on the receiving end of those yeah. beatings. See, I always enjoyed hitting people, though. Yeah, but so, you, yeah. apparently well, so. As I said, you were a sick, twisted maniac. But, I mean, you know, when I was a, really a full-fledged wide receiver, I enjoyed interceptions so I could cremate the but guy. But Ted was, uh, as an offensive tackle, your job was to hit people and stomp them. Did you enjoy it as much? Well, sometimes <laughs> during practice well, you wish he had you... very perverse tastes. Well, he's an ugly human being, but that's besides <laughs> not the point. In, not in the physical sense, because <laughs> yeah, right. I think I'm a beautiful guy. Charming. I think during double days when you're sitting there and you're hitting every single play, everything you do revolves around every drill, every skill that you have revolves around hitting someone in front of you. 
because there's never a bubble. There's never someone that's not facing you, particularly on that position. You always look out at the wide receiver and go, God, I wish I was one of those wideouts uh-huh. where I could run around we, a little we bit. We would look at you guys and say, boy, when we're running our 100th go-round yeah, of the day, yeah. we're going, man, I wish I was the it's offensive line where I only have to move two yards either way. <laughs> and fall down. <laughs> right, basically, yeah. just fall down. Now, you may think that I forgot the question that I posed as the hook before the last commercial break, but I didn't. What about the groupies that uh, swarm around you? Well, only the quarterbacks had groupies. I'll be honest Is with that you. A fact? Well, I, I've been married for 20 years. Tommy's been married ten. for 10. Ted, you've been like 30 years, correct? <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, honestly, you've had to have been married longer. Well, it, than... it differs from sport to sport, too. But the thing about, uh, I mean, the quarterbacks had them, some of the star-wide receivers, some of the skilled guys had the, the groupies. But the reality of it is we left on a Saturday at 1 o'clock right. in the afternoon. We got to our, our, our hotel by 4. On a chartered, uh, on a chartered, a chartered plane. plane. We would have meetings till Chartered about, plane with, without hostesses. Oh, there were, there were stewardesses on there. They, and, you know, that would be hazard pay for them to go on those yeah, kind of Yeah, they didn't want to be involved. I mean, those were just, I mean, it was the same gals that were there for years because uh-huh. they're the only ones that could put up with, with the yeah. athletes. But we'd have meetings till 8 o'clock, and then you'd have bed check by 10. 10. And, of course, bed check was leave your $50 and you're out for some guys and other guys, you know, because that would be the fine if you missed it. But you really didn't have a lot of time to go out. After the game, you got iced up, you packed listen, yourself well, in hold ice, on, but, and you flew home. But that's one day a week. There are six other days. Well, I think... That's six other nights. Remember the movie that came out a couple year, years ago on any given Sunday? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I, I, when I watched that movie, I thought about 70% of that movie was pretty real. Yeah, I... I I don't know that Maybe movie. Maybe 65? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it, there was a lot of things that they did. They, they went to the top or the extreme yeah. on most things. But, yeah, those kind of things did well, happen. Yeah, listen, parties. we had a very time-consuming business. Yeah. Football, more so than other sports, was time-consuming. You wouldn't get out there till late. And you had a demanding practice the following morning. So <clears throat> there were some people that would go out and burn the candle at both ends. But now, not many people hold on, would. Hold, hold on a minute now. Uh, we agree. Kozlowski's ugly. Uh, <laughs> Uh, not in the physical no, sense. You agree with that? No, they, they both. Well, not in the physical sense. Just in the kind in the of the physical sense. That's coming like from an ugly sense. offensive lineman for crying out but loud. But Waddle's a pretty good-looking guy, and when you were a youngster uh, on the team, you were still not married, were you? Ah, uh, as a rookie, no. You better remember All this, right. buddy. What about that? First but I was engaged my second year here. What about the first year? I was so. Ensconced in making this team and working out and not tripping over anything, I wasn't even thinking. Tommy was interesting because he was what would be classified as the practice player his first year. He basically got paid, you don't mind me telling, about sixteen grand, oh, yeah. right, a thousand dollars a week, to just get beat up. He was yeah. the practice dummy in essence, and I can remember Tommy. And, you know, his nickname was Otis, and, and well, it's still probably Otis. Well, I used to go out Otis, with the guys and hang out, and, and I, I was a tavern guy. I mean, I would go <laughs> out and, you know, drink until the, the, you know, till the lights went out. He would stumble but in. I was not. I was a guy that had no, you know, I didn't have any status anywhere, so there would be no groupies involved with me. Because no, free, no free drinks they either. You. They would look so at you and say, you do what? Exactly. You would, you'd spend your $1,000 right there. But he would stumble in, Milt, on a Saturday morning, and he would reek a Zambuca. And I would just look at him. You're making a very <laughs> bad impression of him. No, no, I'm just saying this hold first on, year he was a young on a kid. I've never been a, an NFL player. He would reek of what? Zambuca. What is Zambuca? It's an after-dinner drink with a, 
It's got a little firepower. It does to it. okay before and dinner, dinner and it, during dinner as well. I mean, it doesn't have to specifically be for after dinner. Uh -huh. <laughs> but Wobble, I guess you love it. I mean, this guy would just, he, I used to call him Otis, but then he would turn around and nobody would make more catches or m look more spectacular on a Saturday morning practice than Tom Waddle. And I remember just saying, I was feeling this okay. kid is going to make it. Because this kid, I mean, he just, he loved to play the game. And that's, it. he was there just taking a beating and making very little money, but he loved to play the game. I got a call time out. It's hard to pull myself away from this stuff. I want to plant another question with you. And I mean uh, for you to go at this seriously, if you will. Coaches, what makes a good coach? And how do you relate to coaches? How do they relate to you? Um, the two of you, uh, namely uh, Kozlowski and Waddle, essentially worked for Ditka. Uh, who was your coach there? I had three coaches here with the Bears. You I weren't with Gibran that early. No, no, sir. I'm not that old. Thank you. I started with uh, <laughs> you look that old, Jack Pardee. Thank you very much. Pardee. Jack Pardee, yeah. Neil Armstrong, not to be mistaken with the guy who walked on the moon. Right. And, of course, my final year was with Mike Ditka. Yeah. Well, Ditka is a man that... Uh, Inevitably, we're going to talk about as well as other coaches as we return right after these words. With three former Bears revealing almost all about uh, the real life of the NFL player. Tom Waddle, uh, who, of course, is uh, co-host of WGN's own Sports Central and also one of the three Bears. Uh, they're about to reconvene, or have you started up the three Bears again already? No, we've uh, we've done four preseason 12-hour marathon. Yeah. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the fourth, of, the third of the Bears, um, other than Glenn Kozlowski, who's with us as well, uh, being, of course, Dan Hampton. Uh, and Ted Albrecht is with us. He works for GN as well. He was offensive tackle uh, for the Bears uh, some little while ago. And he is the color commentator for the Northwestern uh, games, uh, together with... Uh, Mr. Dave Ennett. Dave Ennett, the sports, One of the finest broadcasters the in America. director. The cat. A superb broadcaster. As Glenn Kozlowski was a superb uh, uh, fumble recoverer. And that is evidenced by the following clip. Here's the kick from Butler, a deep kick. Megat backs up at the goal line. He comes out of there. Straight ahead five. Makes a head fake of the 10 to the 15. Straight ahead 20. And he fumbles the football up for grabs. Power up at the 23 yard line. Yes, he yes. football. <laughs> Unbelievable. Bears football inside the Giants' 25-yard line. Oh, there was a massive pile up there, still unraveling the pile. And the man who came away with it, Glenn Kozlowski. That's the inimitable and uh, Wayne Larrabee, whom I miss. He was a great play-by-play -play guy. He's up with Green Bay right now. Unfortunately, he is, because he was by far just, uh, to me, he's always going to be a part of the he Chicago Bears. He called it great. Uh, but is that a moment that lives forever in your memory? <laughs> I've forgotten about it. That actually is one of the only plays I made where I actually tackled the guy and recovered the football. Uh -huh. so. Yeah, but you're post-concussed. I mean, you're... No question about it. I mean, I, I had at least 13 to 14 concussions in that my you can career. remember. Really look good. at the size of his head, Concussions too, I mean. meaning you get knocked out. Knocked out cold. Losing, I played a, I played, losing consciousness. Yeah, and then you'd wake up and you'd Wonder. you didn't quite know where you were. Well, yeah. see, the number now the more that they've learned about concussions, the more current and former players have learned how many they've had because now certain you know doctors will tell you that at any moment that you black out, whether it's for a half a second or for five minutes, that is considered a concussion, whether it's mild or it's severe. And you've had some cortical injury, which in fact will last the rest of your life. Right.
Now, I mean, guys, honestly. I think I'm fine. Well, <laughs> so far. But, but seriously, I mean, how many times those in our – I mean, I would have never considered those a concussion. I mean, how many times did you get hit or you hit someone and you blacked out for a second yeah. and came right back? And, and saw the little twinkles. Saw the little twinkles, the stars. They by, today's, yeah. by today's classification. Yeah, that's it. That's a concussion. I've, I've actually played a couple of college games where I don't remember any plays in the game. And it progressed as the game went on. I got hit more and more, obviously, and I just lost all memory of it. But I'll remember the first time that I was playing special teams, and I had never played it in college and high school growing up because I was always a star player. But at the pro level with my injury, this was how I was going to make the team. We're playing the Minnesota Vikings, and I'd, I'd never done it. I remember asking one of the guys, I said, how do you do this? He says, you see those two guys way down there run as fast as you can and tackle them. I thought, well, I could do that. That's easy. So Kevin Butler kicked the ball off down to the guy. The return guy caught it on the left. I was on the outside left, and I took off as fast as I could. And the guys told me later that I was just screaming and spitting and, blah, and just going crazy. And as I'm flying down the field, everybody, the return team sets up, and they take off to the right. And so even though a play takes about four seconds in the NFL, and in those four seconds, you guys know what I'm talking about, it slows way down. I mean, it seems like it's 30 seconds. So in my mind, I calculated I was on the outside, nobody saw me, the angle I was taking, the angle he was taking, I was going to hit him at about the 23-yard line. And I was going to hit this guy, he wasn't going to see me, and here was the cool part about my plan, that when I hit him, I was going to put my helmet on his helmet, his helmet was going to fly off, he was going to fumble the football, I was going to go recover the helmet, my teammate was going to recover the football, I was going to take his helmet, run into the stands, throw it up into the stands, and make the team. So as I'm thinking this, and I'm getting the big grin on my face, Milt, I'm flying down there, and all of a sudden, I realized I hadn't been paying attention. As soon as I thought that thought, everybody going right stopped and reversed back to the left. Now, I'd been flying, spitting, screaming, and having this great dream, so I didn't know where anybody was. So I tried to hit my brakes, and as I slowed down, I looked to my left, and then I looked back into the right, and all I saw was this big purple flash, and I remember hearing this big boom. And it was Tim you Irwin. Ear, you got ear holes. Yeah, Tim Irwin, who was a, the first 300-pound lineman in the NFL, hit me on my right side. Now, the next day in the film, we watch this thing, and I was 15 yards away from the sidelines when he hit me on my right side. I flew in the air. My feet never touched the ground. Mm. And I landed two yards out of bounds. Oh, and when I landed there, he hit me on my right side. And this is the weird part. My whole left side was numb. It's like you were shot out of a cannon. Oh, I just, I was, I, I, like I get run over by train. And I remember my left arm was flopping around like a fish out oh. of water, and I couldn't control it. And the weird part about it is that as I tried to open up my eyes, I saw these little birds and stuff and these yeah. vertical lines. And then all of a sudden... Alice, the maid on the Brady Bunch, started singing to me the Brady Bunch song. Here's the stories. It has to be a Freudian thing. The drugs are kicking oh, in. But I'm right. telling you, I'm sitting there, and I'm going, this is awful. And so, like I've done since I was a little kid, when I got just blasted like this, I'd always check to make sure my, my head was attached. Well, duh, you lose your head, you're not alive. But I started doing this, and so I start tapping around, Milt. And, folks, we have to work with him on something. And, and I'm feeling like this, and all of a sudden I feel like... You know, Alice is still singing to me, but I feel like I can open my eyes. And so as I start to open up my eyes, all I see is this little tunnel of light just below my nose. And I'm like, this is awful. I'm paralyzed on my left side. Alice is singing to me, and I'm going blind, too. I mean, it doesn't get was any it, worse. Was, was, you, was, it acid? was it acid you were taking you before the game? So as I start to t reach down like this, I touch my ear, and I reach out, and I grab my face mask. And the uh, guy had hit me so hard that he had spun my helmet around, and that little tunnel of light was the ear hole in my helmet, and I was looking uh, out of this bad boy. Uh, now, I laugh. Everybody laughs when I tell the story, but my nose was wedged so bad in this ear pad that when I snapped it back around, I broke my nose. I mean, this is how wedged it was. So I snapped it back around. My nose starts bleeding, and now I'm really dazed, and I walk to the sideline, and this little uglier version of Mike Dicka was there, and I'm, I remember going, Coach, medic, and he's, like, pushing me away, and I'm going, 
coach, I'm dying here. And the guy says, cause. And I go, what? He goes, wrong sideline. I said, I know that. Where do I go? And he, and he pointed across the field. He goes over there, and I go, I can't make it. And so the trader came out. They got me. They drug me to the sidelines. And that was the first time that I was truly earholed in the NFL <laughs> and really knew what it was like to get knocked out. And I had no idea where I was. I knew I was playing in a football game. I would say that any psychiatrist would say that, at least on that occasion, you had a rich inner life. <laughs> I did. I mean, yeah, all of those know, fantasies what do you, what do you think about Alice? Optical illusions. And <laughs> Alice, Alice thinking and, to me. That's an auditory hallucination. Did, did I think she was hot? I don't know. I don't know what Now that I've there. turned psychological, I want to give you a one-minute treatise on the psychology of sport. If you think about all the games that are played, or all the sports, they vary on a number of dimensions. One of them is how much uh, team integration, team cooperation they require. My sport, when I was a young guy and literally competed, was track. And that's a totally individualized sport. The most uh, interactive thing you do is somebody may pace you uh, if you work it out that way, or you may have a relay team. Otherwise, you do everything by yourself. And you're uh, very often, if you're a top guy, competing against yourself, against your last performance. Baseball doesn't require at all as much uh, cooperation and team play as football does. It requires some, certainly with regard to fancy fielding. It doesn't particularly with regard to hitting or pitching. Uh, though maybe you need a little bit of cooperative interaction between the pitcher and the catcher who's signaling. When it comes to football, or basketball, obviously, or various other such sports, uh, there's a tremendous amount of team play that is required. There are game plans, war plans, which have to be executed, which you rehearse and you practice. They have to be well executed, and you need a leader, apparently, who will really not only shape the plan for you, but who will keep you all together in some sort of tense but motivated and cooperative way so that uh, you really perform at your optimum. And that man is the coach. In the year 1995, you had a coach up at Northwestern. We're going to college uh, for the moment. Gary Barnett, who came in there and he took a nothing team, or at least it has been nothing in recent years, and he turned it into a Rose Bowl competitor. It turned it into an incredible team that year. Or wasn't it his doing? Uh, Ditka took the Bears to uh, the Super Bowl for the first time in a long, long time. 20 years. Was that his doing, or did it just happen otherwise? Well, first what of all... What does the coach I, have to do I, with the quality of the team? I think, first of all, the coach has to have some uh, skills that uh, are above and beyond any, uh, any of his assistants, and that's why he's in that position. He has to be a great leader, number one. He has to be a communicator. He has to be a motivator. He has to be very organized, and he has to build the concept is that less of me and more of we. Because uh, that's what Gary Barnett used to say a lot. I mean, this is a we sport. It's not a me sport. And I think what Gary developed there, he built, he, he built that, that chemistry and that how do you win in this conference more games with less talent? How do you do that? I mean, that is really the golden question. How so do you they do really that? were not an especially unusually talented bunch. No. I do think they had a very specialized and talented defense, but it certainly wasn't some of the, you know, one of the greatest defenses to ever play college football. But they believed so much in what they had. And he saw, he, he made sure they could see the invisible so they could do the impossible. And I think he instilled the fact that if you believe, and you, you can win. And so once he had the nucleus of the talent, and, the, and he formed the talent together to believe in themselves, and then to be selfish, mm -hmm. not to be selfish. 
and trust one another. Trust the fact that if you're if you're going to a, a center is going to play with his two guards and the three of us are going to block those two guys over there. The three of us must do it together. Not like I'm going to go out there and knock that inside linebacker over, but I need to have a chip from the guy next to me. The three of us are going to. That's all trust. Is it's it all possible trust. that every that most good coaches have at least one or two magical seasons in their career, but don't necessarily have any more. When you come right down to it, Barnett hasn't done all that well since he left Northwestern. And if you think of Mike Ditka, and he was certainly a big character around town, and he was certainly a strong coach, but he didn't do that well with the team after New Orleans, did he? Well, he, yeah, New Orleans was just, I think that at that point, he had some tough things that happened to him there, and I think loyalty was one of the things that uh, was his downfall in New Orleans. If we're talking about his last stand as a head coach, the struggle with him. He had he had coaches that see. Part of the thing about head coaching, especially now in the NFL, is that you're really not coaching; you're administrator, and then uh -huh. you 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 create as as Ted talked about this sense of urgency and us. He had trouble the rest with that guy world. who went to Philadelphia. What was his name? Buddy Ryan. Buddy Ryan. Yeah, Buddy well, Ryan. The year they won the Super Bowl, they really had, if you talk to the players, if you talk to Dan Hampton, they had a head coach on defense and a head coach on offense. And that would be Mike Dick and Buddy Ryan. And yeah. they used to clash, but Mike was still the head head coach. And so, uh, you know, Mike, his speeches were tremendous. And uh, on Friday his, nights, his, his Saturday speeches that he'd yeah. get before a game, you'd get excited. You want to go out there. They and would win. really fire you up. They would. And, and as you, the longer you hung around, the less impact it had on you, but he still, I know Tommy as a young guy, young player, the first couple of years, you were ready to run through a wall for Mike Dick. There's no question. he would lay out these speeches that would just make you... i got to ask go. you, what was, what was in well, those speeches? What was the nature of the rhetoric? I mean, it's hard to pinpoint exactly. I mean, it was the message. I mean, there's really no other explanation for someone like myself who was six foot tall and 178, uh -huh. 180 pounds. What around. are you doing in that sport? To well, and, and excelling at some time. There are very few people that you'll run across in life, I think, regardless of your profession or your field, that can get more out of you than you think you can get out of yourself. Mm -hmm. they, there are certain people, I think, that are that special that can convince you that you can do, without you know, making it sound goofy or corny, superhuman things for your own parameters. I mean, I wasn't going to run any faster, but I could certainly do some other things to become successful. I just... I saw a guy that was successful as a, a player, uh, has, was successful as a coach, and, and, and he instilled the feeling in me that, hey, if you, you're not just letting, you know, you, you do something wrong, you're not just letting yourself down and you're, you, you, you're affecting your job security, you're letting 52 other guys you gotta, in the you roster. You've got to show me how he did it. Well, he, give me a version of a, of a Ditka speech in the locker room before the game. Well, I mean, in the locker room before the game, he really just, hey, we're ready, let's go. We'd say a prayer and off we'd go. The night before is when he'd start oh. giving the, the fire and brimstone. And really I the see. things that he, he involved were, uh, number one, he always created us against the rest of the world. And we all felt yeah. like it was just the guys in the room, and if we didn't pull together and accomplish whatever the goal was, then... It was our fault. It was, was he, nobody else. Was he aggressive and critical, or was oh, he? Sometimes. I mean, he'd cry at other times. I can remember uh -huh. where he, yeah. would, he would actually tear up. And I can remember one game before the game started where he said, um, the good guy, and we, we were struggling that season, he said, the good guy died in church this morning. And 
some of the guys were so far back that we didn't hear him correctly. We thought he said his grandmother died this morning. So we dedicated the game to his grandmother after he left. And we said, we're going to do something. We're going to win this game. And we went out there and we busted our hump and we won the game. And I remember uh, Hamp and some of the guys were presenting him the game ball after the game. And he's looking at me like, what are you guys talking about? And they're going, well, your, your grandmother had passed. And he goes, no, I said the good guy died this morning at church. But it was, you know, I mean, these are the kind of things that he would do. And as a player, you, you know, we decided we're going to win this game for his grandmother who passed away for, for this guy. You, you know, Milt, um, a guy that I played with is now a head coach. I don't know if you guys played with Jeff Fisher. Absolutely. Or, yeah, I mean, I, I, actually, I came in after, but yeah. I got to know Jeff. Uh, and, and, you know, I got to know Jeff a, a very well. In fact, we shared some office space together in the offseason. He was trying to plan for life after football. And, you know, he I knew that he was going to be successful if he stayed in the game. And he was really tossing it up. Should I stay in business or should I go into the game? And it was really Buddy Ryan that convinced him to leave prior to that game down in the New Orleans in the 1985 Super Bowl to come with him. But we'll talk about Jeff later. He's a different type of head coach. And we'll talk later about the whole question of life after football, which you're all enjoying right now. Right now, we're due for some commercials, and then shortly after that, the quick update on the evening's news, and then directly back. But before any of that, it's time to tell you that we're opening the phone lines. We're very interested in getting your calls. Get them in quickly. We'll turn to the phones shortly. 591-7200 is the number, 591-7200. And we return. Uh, we're entertaining three bears tonight. Not the three bears you regularly hear, two of them plus one other, whom you hear on Saturdays when we do the Northwestern games. All of them, of course, WGN broadcasters. Tom Waddle, Glenn Kozlowski, and Ted Albrecht. And the general theme tonight is life uh, behind the, uh, the muscular curtain, I guess. I don't know what we call it. But at any rate, uh, r the real life of NFL players, one thing we haven't got to is life after football. Is there life after football? For the three of you, there clearly is. I wonder if some guys uh, have uh, sadder post-football uh, post careers than the three of you have had. I raised that question. We'll talk about it shortly. Uh, but in a minute, we have to go to the news break. And even before that, again, we invite telephone calls. The lines are open. Get your calls in. It's my plan to get to the telephones within 10 minutes or so of this very moment. 591-7200 for any question you want to raise or, for that matter, any memory you want to share. If you're a former NFLer, make sure to give us a call so we'll uh, get you in on the conversation early. 591-7200 is the number. And for that matter, if you're listening to us over in Tokyo and you're playing football in Japan these days, they don't really do that, do they? They play a lot of baseball, so. but so. not yet football. Where do they play football in the world other than they here? They play in Europe. Place? They play a little football in Europe. Well, okay, yeah, if, you're, starting. if you're over in, over in Italy or in Germany, give us a call, or rather, uh, give us an email. The email address, extension720 at tribune.com. If you're listening to us, uh, you're up awfully late at night, uh, but we'd be very glad to hear from you via email, extension720 at tribune.com. And now to the newsroom and Jim Anthony. So, is there life after football? Obviously, there is for lots of guys, you three guys, apart from the aches and pains that you carry around with you. Your listeners must think they dialed up a different station yeah, tonight. Yeah, I thought of that all night. Well, I'm sure that they, you know, they, you tackle much more significant topics than, you know, three decrepit old football Neanderthals. Well, every time I listen to you guys talk about football, you, uh, you have a richness of interpretation and of knowledge that I couldn't possibly match. 
you know, but every four words <laughs> thanks, are, thanks, you know, Milt. every fourth word is a swear word that we can't even, you know, utter on the radio. But anyway, what I really wanted to ask you, uh, you've done well, all three of you. You're working well. We'll talk about what you're doing uh, shortly. Uh, and it isn't just broadcasting, in the case, uh, at least in the case of Kozlowski and Albrecht. Do you know any guys who really just blew it all afterwards? I know a lot of guys that did. I was actually, my f brother played for the Miami Dolphins for eight seasons mm -hmm. when I was a kid, and I used to be the ball boy down there and, uh, in the summers. I didn't know that. And um, I saw a lot of guys at the end of their careers walk away with nothing. They'd lose their families. They would uh, you know, just be in utter chaos, and mm. their life's basically ruined. And, and a lot of those guys turned out to be just bums, I mean, in essence. And uh, So those are the ones that contribute to that statistic. That uh, Tom started us with, yeah. right? I, I, they contribute yeah. to that low average longevity. I, I think say. the NFL has done a very good job in the last right. decade trying to prepare players for life after football. And I don't care what anyone says. You can have all the money in the world. It helps. There is <laughs> no way that you can Get that replicate rush. the 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 camaraderie, the, highs, the highs that are involved, the competitiveness. It took me two years removed from the game to actually feel like my head wasn't – I have a finance degree from Boston College. I'm, you know, I consider myself fairly intelligent and able to do something. I, I would say I'd spend a year and a half kind of stumbling around not knowing what to do to fill well, that here's, void. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like what, for women who've just had a baby, you call postpartum depression. Well, no, this is no. postpartum uh, football when you've been parted from the football. You've right. got to keep something in mind, Milt. We were paid – I was paid for eight years to play football. Yeah. But I started at seven years old, and I never stopped playing until I was 31. So in essence, I had an entire career playing football. Every summer, I knew exactly what yeah. I was going to do. And when September started, I was playing games. And I understood what, I, what it took to get my body ready to play. Uh -huh. And so, I mean, for 27 years, I job. was playing football, period. And, and you know what I call that? I call it preparation for civilian life. Because not only is there the financial change, but the psychological change... There's also uh, the sociological change. People, People want to hang around anymore. with you. People yeah. don't love you anymore. They want to hang around with you. They want the Bad News Bears basketball team used to have travel around, you know, Five, four, five thousand people would show up. And, I mean, you know, anywhere you go, Rush Street was still running strong when I came here. But, you know, that's, that all changes. Never you know? had to pay for a dinner, never had to do anything. You know, that, you know, they want you to come in your tavern because if you come in, everybody else comes in. Mm -hmm. you know, well, that changes all of a sudden when, when you retire. I remember when I basically got out of the game, the Bears went to the Super Bowl within 18 months, and I, I, felt, I felt pretty poor. I felt like I'd maybe failed. So I think there are some huge psychological changes no that question. one goes through. Absolutely. And if you're not prepared for life after football, civilian life, if you're not planning a second career, and I think I used to fight with Jim Finks. I go, Jim, the general manager at the time, I said, this building opens up at 9 o'clock, okay? I said, I want to get an off-season job going. Why don't you open the building up at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock or run shifts? But I said, I'd like to lift weights and work out and, and do a cardiovascular workout and then get to a job by maybe 11 or 12 so I can work a half day. And it took basically four years for them to get that plan because guys didn't do that. Well, my father-in-law played from 60 to 70. Gino Capaletti played was a, an all-star player yeah, for Great the players. AFL for years. And these guys, the majority of them, all of his teammates, they all had, they, they worked, they had two jobs. They played football, they got paid whatever they were getting paid, and then when the season was over, they all went to work. Well, they were getting trivial salaries in those days. That's right. They? Well, compared to the rest of the world, though, no. I mean, let's don't kid ourselves. Those guys were knocking ten to $12,000 down a year. That's a lot of money back in the 60s. Well, mm, I still not think really. they were, I think, yeah, it's I don't money, think so. but it's not a lot of money. Not like today, but if I was in the game today,
I would have a personal trainer. I would have someone that would basically, you know, brush my teeth and sleep with me to make sure that I was getting my rest. I mean, I would spend some of that money in reinvesting in my own product myself, my body. And that's the smart. I mean, I see these guys uh, today and I read about the fact that they're, they have personal trainers. I mean, look at Tiger Woods. I mean, he's, he changed the course of golf today because he works out two to three hours a day. So if you're in a contact physical violence sport like football, you better be working out every single day that you possibly it's can. It's a year-round job. But you can, think, you can think that I, you could be the most educated guy in the world. You could ha be the most grounded guy in the world. But as we all know, even if you you're end on your one. own terms, you're going to spend some time trying to find your way in life again outside of football because, as Kaz says, since the age of eight, you've basically that's all you've done. You've been consumed with it for some football players wind up in unusual places. One of them wound up on the Supreme Court, right? Yes. Wizard White, right? Who's the next former football player? How about Bob Supreme Thomas? Court Bob Thomas is an Illinois Supreme um, Court justice, isn't yeah. he? Alan Page in Minnesota, in Minnesota Supreme Court. Yeah. We got a guy that's a congressman in. Um, Largen, Steve Largen. Not surprising. Yeah. More than one, I think. But, yeah. you know, the other thing, too, Milt, you have to understand is that we all came from college where we were on a college scholarship earning, I earned 145, um, 145.30, I remember that, um, a month in my scholarship check. And all of a sudden, your first-round draft choice, you come to the Bears, someone hands you $100,000. What so, do you do? So I mean, right away, it really, it really taints your outlook on life quickly. But you guys have all done rather well since football. Let's talk about that just quickly, then some commercials, then uh, to the hordes who are waiting to talk with you. Now, you, I uh, point my finger uh, at Tom, are a broadcaster and nothing else, but you're broadcasting all over the place. I uh, obviously work here on uh, Monday through Friday, unless there's a Cubs game or a Northwestern mm -hmm. basketball game, doing Sports Central with... That baseball lunatic, the David stallion. Kaplan. Mm -hmm. uh, Kaz and, and I do. Former basketball coach. That's right. We uh, do Bears coverage here. I also am a uh, sports anchor with Fox 32. Uh, I do Bears pregame and postgame coverage with them. I do a weekly, regardless of season, weekly magazine style television show at Fox Sportsnet for the Bulls, the Blackhawks, the Cubs, and the Sox. Plug it. When is it on? Uh, it runs 12 o'clock on Sunday mornings and then again at 5.30, I believe, on Sundays. Mm -hmm. uh, I do a show called Pro Football Weekly with Dan Hampton and Hub Arkish, and that's pretty much a full-time... That sounds pretty full -time, much a full-time uh, Good stuff. Yep. So, and he watches his three little daughters. And I've got three young daughters, eight and younger, so that's... Uh -huh. that's and Ted has been in the travel business for quite a while, isn't that right? Right. I got involved in the travel business my very first off-season with the largest corporate travel company in Chicago and expanded it now, and we uh, are involved in uh, travel in Arlington Heights, all the travel systems. We do corporate travel, meeting planning, incentive travel. Um, and then on the side, I, I've always been involved in, in radio. I worked for, as you know, WBBM for about 13 years. That's where I met you know, Brad Palmer and Rich King and Dave Hennett and, and all those guys, and then uh, came over here. And so I was actually over there, see, for 13 years doing Saturday and Sunday shows before Saturday, any sports talk shows were even alive. And then, of course, came over here with Dave uh, in 94 to do the Northwestern games. But I used to travel around doing the PIA radio college game of the week brought to you by Allstate or something. And I would travel around and then still come back and do travel. And uh, so, yeah, I've been kind of doing the radio mm -hmm. thing for a while. And Glenn is an insurance man of all things. Yes, I have a little brokerage and also a, a, a third-party administrator in drugs. Now that, so we that, do drug testing. Uh, that wouldn't interest me. You're the guy that 
we, we, tests employees for whether they're on the stuff or well, not. Well, our, our company sets up the uh, policies for the companies. We administer their drug uh, programs. If I knew you were going to drug test me, you would intimidate me, and I would get off whatever I was on. Try. I hope so. I mean, that, that is the uh, that's the. Uh, but you can come to me, and I've got that's a company that for. sells masking agents. So uh, actually, no, no the I'm testing joking. is so refined now that you 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 could test for anything and be able to find even that. Yeah. So it's now as well it should be. Here's our plan: uh, some commercials, and then on to the phones. Five nine one seventy two hundred. I see a few people. Our lines were all filled, but a few people got tired of waiting. So. There are one or two lines available right now. If you've been trying to reach us, try again quickly. We go to the phones on 591-7200 right after this. 